Good morning. Uh, we are in a summer series, and because we know people are going to be taking a break and getting out of the city, getting out of maybe even the country, we've designed a series that helps uh, prepare you, I hope will help prepare you, for where you are going and who you are becoming, wherever it is that you are. And in order to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to go through different places in the Bible that we tend to frequent when we go on holiday. Uh, this isn't a topical sermon series as so much as it is a topographical sermon series. Because wherever you're going, we want to inform you of those particular places. Uh, to recognize that God meets us wherever we are and helps us grow uh, in becoming whoever he's calling us to be. And so we're going to spend time at the lake this summer. Uh, we're going to spend time at the shore. We're going to hit the road. But we are also going to spend time in the mountains. And last week we looked at a passage uh, from the book of Kings, Second Kings, that took place in the mountains. And today we're going to look at um, a story that takes place uh, in the mountains as it relates to Abraham and what's called the binding of Isaac. And so would you join me for what is actually a very challenging passage here in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early in the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The wood and the fire are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, we pray that you would provide. That you would provide answers, that you'd give us understanding, that you would 
give us peace. And above all things, Lord, would you extend your grace to us once again so that we might believe, so that we might believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So right here um, in this passage, what do we see? It's a test. Abraham is being tested. He's given a test, and it's a terrible test. And as you and I think about tests in general, we should just simply recognize that we have mixed feelings when it comes to tests. And there's good reasons for that, right? Tests test us. They test our intellect. They test our discipline. They test our emotions. They challenge us in every way. They make us question ourselves. But we need tests. We need tests. Because we, uh, we rely on tests to help us understand what we know, to understand, help us understand what we need to know. Uh, tests also help us to understand who we can trust. So if I were to go into a doctor's office because I need tests, it's helpful when I look on the wall and I see credentials that say that this particular person, that I'm going to place my life into their hands, that I can trust them. Why? Because they've passed the tests. So tests are really important. They're so important. And spiritual tests are important too. On the mountain here, Abraham is experiencing a test of faith. And it should go without saying that it's not the mountains that are testing Abraham here. The mountains can test us, right, physically, so on and so forth. It's not the mountains that are testing Abraham here, but it, it's God who tests him on the mountain. And this test is a test in which um, it's a test that doesn't produce faith in so much as it reveals the faith of Abraham. It's not a test that uh, all of a sudden, um, you know, produces faith, that he, he works hard and all of a sudden he has a faith that he never had before. No, this is a test that demonstrate, demonstrates the faith that Abraham had grown into. See, it's not a test that produces faith as it is so much a test that reveals faith. And so as we look at this passage, as, as we study the God of Scripture, the God who tests those he loves, let's admit that there's a shock of this test. There's a severity of this test. But we also have to be able to see that there's an assurance that comes with this test of God's love. Let's see the shock of the test, the severity of the test, and let's see the assurance that comes with this test, the assurance in God's love. First, the shock of this test. It is self-explanatory, isn't it? How shocking this test is. When we think of the notion of a, tr a child tribute like this, a child sacrifice like this, it is, to say the least, shocking. Uh, if you were to ask anybody on the street, their natural response would be repulsion. And let, me, let me phrase it this way. Their natural healthy response would be repulsion. Based on their own personal circumstances, their own life story, if you were to mention this topic to them, they very well may just throw up on you. You know, when I think about my friends and neighbors who have issues with, with God, who have issues with religion and the way that Christians have handled themselves in the world throughout, um, throughout history, this passage is one of the passage, passages that that brings them the most problems. It's that shocking. 
Now, I'm going to show you, uh, I hope, two reasons why it's just as shocking to Abraham. But I also want to, without, without uh, removing the shock, I'd like to also put that, the shock of this passage into some perspective for us and alleviate what I think is probably just a problem for us because we don't know the full story. And that is, is that when we read that Isaac is his son, his only son, he's referred to as a boy, he's referred to as a child, that we tend to think that he is a prepubescent, preteen kid. He's a little boy, but that's not the case. If you look throughout uh, the rest of the, the book, we realize by just matching d- dates and, and events that, a, that Isaac is not a little boy in so much as he is, is a, a man. He's a man in what's believed to be his early to middle mid-30s. So if you look at the passage, uh, overall, you look at the book overall, you can see that Jewish tradition contends that Isaac in this this situation at this test is a grown man, not a little boy. But you can also see it in the passage because Isaac does in a short term what the what the mules, the donkeys do in a long term. He carries the wood for the altar on his back a short distance. But previously, it's the donkeys who carried that wood over a long distance. And that's all to say, little boys can't carry that kind of wood. He'd have to be a grown man. And so it all makes sense. Uh, This isn't a sleight of hand. When Abraham, who's an old boy, old man, refers to his son, his only son, he's referring to an adult. When he thinks of him as his boy, he's thinking of his, his, his boy. You know, my, my son will always be my boy, right? No matter how old he is, so on and so forth. So that shouldn't minimize the shock, but it does add a new interesting layer to it all, which we'll talk about further later on. But there's a couple other reasons uh, that not only are we shocked, but there's a couple of reasons why Abraham would even be more shocked. And that is because when it comes to this kind of tribute, this kind of sacrifice, the God of the Bible stood virtually alone in that in the ancient world as one who honored, protected daughters and, and sons. Uh, this God, uh, the God of the Bible, um, was not the the God who practiced this kind of sacrifice, didn't practice child sacrifice. In fact, he stood against those who did. So child sacrifice was the practice of the Ammonites, the Canaanites. Uh, It was the practice of those who worshiped Baal. And it has been the practice for many cultures throughout time and in history. So if you look at the Aztecs, they practice child sacrifice. You look at the Druids, the cultic religions of Carthage, um, all of those practice child sacrifice, as shocking as, as that may seem, but not the God of the scriptures. Uh, if you look into the New Testament, you see God come in the flesh. And what does Jesus say? Let the little children come to me as their maker, as their creator, as the one who promises them life now and life eternal. So if, let me just drive the point home a little further. You can go to Second Chronicles 28. You can go to Jeremiah 32, Leviticus 20. In those particular passages, time and time again, it is recognized as the highest offense 
the act that is punishable by death, the one that the Father would turn his face away from those who commit this kind of brutality. Barbarism. It's a shock to Abraham. It's a shock. Second, it's a shock to him, not just culturally, not just his understanding of God, but it's also a shock to the promises that God has made to him personally. See, Abram was called out of uh, the Chaldees. Or he was called out of the Chaldees. He was called to go and create a new life. And that in, in being called out, he was going to become not just a father, which is what Abraham means, or excuse me, what Abram means. He was going to become the father of many nations. Father of many nations is the what is what uh, Abraham is translated into. And so when he's called to sacrifice Isaac, who is the first in the line of his covenant, the first in the line of, of the many nations, it is seemingly contradictory to the promises. And so you can see, it's not just shocking culturally, it's not just shocking to his understanding of who this God is and what his character is and what he stands for. It's shocking for his own, the, his own call on his life. It seems to be uh, contradicting the promises that God has given to him. So, whether you're new to faith, whether you're uh, experiencing faith, as you consider this God, we have to remember that God does, a relationship with God can be shocking. I want to say, not in this way, not in this way. But the God of the Bible tests us because he loves us. And sometimes in different circumstances, it feels utterly shocking to us. And it can also feel quite severe. And that's the second part of this test. It's not just a shocking test. It's a severe test. And why is it so severe? Why does it feel so in? incisive you know and the reason it's so it's severe the reason it's just so sharp and penetrating is because it's absolutely necessary now if you know the story of abraham then you know that nine times prior to this he was called to make some big and some small decisions and with each time each decision which was a kind of mini test he was often afraid he doubted. Um, he often was, 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 had an opportunity, shall we say, to believe in the promise of God or to be pragmatic. To believe in the promises of God or to be a pragmatist. And the reader, as we go along, we have uh, the opportunity to examine right along with God that basically nine out of those ten times, he chooses pragmatism over the promises of God. You remember... Uh, the situation with his wife, Sarah, she was so beautiful that he was afraid that if the rulers in this new land that they were in saw her, they would kill him in order to have her. So he said, don't tell them my, that you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. Now, this did had no benefit to her, but only benefit to him. Seeing as his mind, he didn't cling to the promises of God, that God was at work doing something in his life. And not just his life, but Sarah's life. 
but he chooses pragmatism over and against God's promises and to a great degree over and against his wife. Of course, that wasn't the last time, you know, Abraham was a, was a polygamist. Abraham, because he didn't believe in the promises of God to the extent that he needed to, he married Hagar. And because of that, uh, why? Because he doubted that Sarah would ever conceive. So in so many trials, so many tests, what did he do? He took the shortcut. He took matters into his own hands. He sought to follow God, but when it didn't appear that God knew what God was doing, Abraham fudged his way forward. And when he fudged his way forward, you see a pattern. And what is that pattern? It's a pattern where he chooses uh, to protect his family and his finances over furthering, further belief into the promises of God. And so why are those two uh, categories important? Well, they're important because each of those categories, both family and finances, both his prosperity and his progeny, are bound up in Isaac. Because ancient cultures, your firstborn son was your future. In ancient cultures, your first, firstborn son was uh, your security. Through him, your line would be extended. Through him, you would be cared for it in your old age. This was absolutely true in this culture. But you can imagine, let's be sympathetic here, how much pressure that would have meant, therefore, for Abraham, who even just based on the promise would have clung to what he had there in his hand, right? And so I think you can make the case that that Isaac was his son, uh, his only son, but in some sense he had become an idol for him, an idol. Now, if you want to know what idols are in ancient cultures and in our own hearts today, no better place to turn to than Tim Keller. You know, Tim said in, um, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God, he calls idols, is anything so central and essential to your life that you should lose it, that if you should lose it, your life will feel utterly uh, will feel hardly, excuse me, worth living. When human beings try to become more than human beings to be gods, they f- fall to become lower than human beings. And so what do we see here? We see that uh, over the course of Abraham's life, he's been persuaded. He's been um, manipulated. He's been uh, courted by these counterfeit gods in his own life, his own heart. A need for security and control that only finances or or family could bring. And so what ends up happening when we give way to these counterfeit gods, not only do we end up sacrificing the very things we truly love to appease these false gods, but we go against the very things that we believe in order to serve them. This was going on in Abraham's life, and therefore the need for a test, as shocking as this is, there's a need for it to be severe so he can get to the heart of the matter. I gave you Isaac, not to worship Isaac, 
not to worship family or finances or your future. I give you Isaac for my purposes, but I'm God and therefore worship me. Now, of course, today we've baptized babies into the name of this God. We've washed them with water. We've put his promises upon them, his blessings upon them, because this is what the God of the Bible does. And therefore, we ought to be reminded and charged and challenged that we are not to put these children on the altar of our own expectations for them, to be sacrifices to the idols of our own hearts, that children are not are not to be sacrificed to to live um, out our dreams for success or our notions of what a good career could be for them or should be for them. Many a child in Western culture has had to sacrifice their lives to pursue their parents' dreams, their parents' goals, their parents' understanding of happiness. And and as good as those goals could be, they're not necessarily the call of God. So, we must not be naive. We must not be naive. No, we don't sacrifice in the ways of ancient cultures, bloody, barbaric. But we do it in our own way, don't we? A good friend of mine confessed to me that his son, when he was in high school, that he hadn't seen him. He confessed to me that he that for the majority of his, his life, he hadn't seen his son from Monday to Friday. And the reason for that was that he worked so early in the morning and he didn't come home until so late at night that he just, he missed him. His son got up late, his son went to bed early, he wasn't there. And of course he said, you know, the irony is that I'm working so hard to provide my family with a good life that I ended up sacrificing a true relationship with him. And of course that can happen to any of us, but what's going on in that? That our desires are battling against each other. We have a desire to provide good lives for the people we love, and yet that's in competition with our desire for success or approval or our fear of missing out, our fear of not being in control. And before we know it, we're not just trying to provide a good life. But our life is all out of balance that we don't even realize that we're laying down our lives, our families to please counterfeit gods who promise us the world but cannot deliver us anything. And certainly not anything eternal. So we must not be naive. And Abraham demonstrates he's not naive He's not naive, at least anymore. The third aspect of this passage that we should recognize is not only is it shocking, not only is it severe, but there's an assurance that comes from this test that we must see. We must remember this is a test. This is only a test. Remember when we were kids, when I was a kid, I'd hear on the television, you know, as we were watching, the the screen would go blank. It would interrupt regular programming. We'd all be frustrated. We'd have this annoying sound uh, penetrating the living room now. It just was so uncomfortable and awkward. But we heard this, this phrase, this is a test. This is only a test. 
And that was a call for patience. That was a call for, for understanding. This was a call to say that this will not last forever. In fact, it's just a test. It's a test for our good. And so we notice here that Abraham is now ready for this kind of test. What does he say when the Lord calls him? He says, here I am. In other words, test me, examine me. I surrender, I obey. I'm open to your work on my life. Uh, how do we see that lived out? He gets up early. He may have stayed up all night sweating. He may have stayed up all night praying, but he gets up early because he's ready to face the test. He saddles the donkey. He cuts the wood himself. Remember, Abraham was a sultan. He was a rich man with many servants. He didn't have to handle the wood. He didn't have to saddle his donkey, but he did it because the test was for him and nobody else, and he was not farming it out. It was for him, and he takes it on himself. But he has such confidence and such assurance that even as he says, servants, you wait here, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to deal, or I'm going to go over here, and with my son, we're going to worship, which that means we're going to go bow down to the true God. He says, and then you know what we're going to do? We'll return. Not just me. We'll return. Why? Because in his heart of hearts, he knows this is a test. This is only a test. I trust in the promises of God. And he will find a way. Now, where does he get that? Of course, through his own interactions with the Lord, he learns to trust. But he also receives a promise right at the, at the beginning of this test and right at the end. And that is the word Abraham. Abraham means father of many nations. And he begins the test, father of many nations. Remember my promise. I'm going to call you to something, but remember my promise. And of course, that's how he brings the test to an end. Father of many nations. And a little that's a little bit like a surgeon coming and whispering into, your, into Abraham's ear. Father of many nations, we're going to do some heart surgery here. We're going to open up your heart. And it's going to be painful and it's going to be awkward, but you're going to come under the knife and you're going to feel it. And it's going to be sore. You're never going to forget it. You may even have a scar. But father of many nations, you can have hope. You can have hope. And so that's what he does. And so what we see in all of this is shocking. It's severe. But there is a sweet, there is an assurance and a sweetness to this all. Because this is a test of love. Do you love and trust me, Abraham, to know that under any trial, any test, you can trust me you can uh, obey, you can believe, and I will provide. Do you know that when I put you to the test, that I am supporting you, that I'm caring for you? Do you know that when I test you, I will give you insight that you wouldn't have otherwise? That I'll give you insight, uh, creativity, innovation, that you wouldn't have apart from this test? Now, notice Abraham, let me put it this way. Do you know what the New Testament says about Abraham in this moment? Do you know what the New Testament says that he was experiencing in the midst of this test? It's a, all commentators are trying to figure it out. What's he, what's he thinking through? But, but in the book of Hebrews, we're told. The author of the book of Hebrews doesn't mention any dread or fear or bitterness. The author of Hebrews mentions this. 
that he has hope in the midst of this test. Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham reasoned that God would even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, if this was a test apart from God, he would be as sure as dead. But because he's doing this before the Lord, he has every reason to hope. God will keep his promises. I will be obedient to him. Maybe he'll even raise the dead. I trust him. Oh, what a test. Do you need to have hope in the midst of the tests of your life? I do. Abraham couldn't face the trials of life, the testing of God, without the knowledge that God can do anything, even the impossible, even raise Isaac from the dead. Now, do you see what I just did there? This is an important point. Do you see what I just did? I used the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament, and that is so important. We cannot understand the Old Testament apart from the New. You know, St. Augustine said this. He said, the New Testament is the Old Testament. The New is in the Old concealed, he says. The Old is in the New revealed. And what he's describing there is the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, how they work with each other. He says, in the New Testament, you see the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And what that is simply saying is that in order to... Understand the old, you need the new to come in and shine light to it. It's like shining light into a living room that is laid dark. You can't see all the furniture. There's all these obstacles. But the New Testament comes and reveals the world, the meaning, the purpose, the theological furniture of the old. They work in tandem. They can't be separated from one another. And therefore, I'd, I'd like to suggest, I'd like to just encourage, I'd like to just, in some sense, command, read the old in light of the new. Understand the new in light of the old. And if you do, you'll see that there's a sweetness. You know, when we look at this passage, we go, oh, thank goodness there's a ram. He provides a ram. And a ram was a temporary relief, a temporary reprieve, so that, Isaac didn't have to be sacrificed, but they could continue to worship. They could still worship, right? But in the New Testament, what, what do we see that Jesus is called? Jesus is called the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And so there we see that there the old and the new are interacting together. But look at Abraham. You know, we look at Abraham as a demonstration of great faith in his obedience. But what we need to see is that it's not just Abraham who was faithful, but it was Isaac too. And what you have there is a picture of both father and son working faithfully, worshiping faithfully together. Both Abraham and Isaac working together in order to worship the Lord. And that's there in verse 5. And there we see that he is this grown man in his 30s, being obedient to his father in carrying the wood. He's a grown man in his 30s, allowing his father to do what? To bind him on the altar. And as painful and as awkward as this picture is, is it not a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus? See, this is not just a test, but this is a test 
for us, do we comprehend what God had to do? Do we understand how painful and, and horrific and how seemingly unnatural it is, but that God himself did this for us in order to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law, in order that we might have atonement for our sins, in order to do all that God had to give his son, his only son. And do you know where he did it? He did it in the mountains of Moriah. Because in the mountains of Moriah, which is where Abraham is, is a city called Jerusalem. And it was in those mountains where this other son, the greater Isaac, was, was sacrificed. See, Jesus is this, this greater Isaac who comes and submits to his own father's will. He's our provision. So we all recognize the shock and the severity, but do we see the sweetness, friends? Do we now have a better appreciation of the trial that God himself went through? Not to make us fathers of many nations, but to bring the many nations that he would establish through Isaac home forever. That through his death and resurrection, many nations outside of Israel might have a father. So what do we think about tests? You know, basic belief is a test. And I'm afraid that as challenging as this is, but how sweet it ultimately is, is revealed. I'm afraid that some of us won't ever be tested because we won't ever step into greater degrees of belief unless he, what, meets all of our criteria of understanding. Basic belief is a test. Let me ask, how long will you examine God? When will you allow God to actually examine you? Even if it means coming under the knife. Let me ask, how is your posture towards testing? Do you test your own moral outrage? You know, there's a lot to be shocked at in the world. Are you as shocked by your own sins and shortcomings as you are by the sins and shortcomings of others? Abraham was. How indignant are you at those people or institutions that have failed spiritual tests? Perhaps you need a test uh, of love. <laughs> Do you test his grace? And what I mean by that is, are you constantly putting yourself under the exams of life and recognizing how often you failed, how often maybe you failed uh, yourself or your culture, that you're constantly under self-examination, you're constantly under scrutiny, and you're never able to pass. But do you put his grace to the test? And, and, uh, allow um, allow the reality that Jesus Christ has passed the test for you. He's put himself under the knife for you so that you can know his grace, that you can know his love, you can be called his son and never be tested like that. Like any test, friends, you have to sit for it. You have to take it. But the key to being tested, it seems, is that as you're faithful to him, you know God will always provide a way out for you. He's done that in Jesus. And therefore, you're free to fail. You're free to fail. 
because he passed the test. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We give you thanks. We know that you will never let us down. You'll never let it, let us be pushed past our limits, but you'll always come and you'll give us what we need to persevere. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.